While they're doing that, let me invite you to open your Bible to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. As we start this uh, new year off, I will say Happy New Year to you. And I would love to echo just what uh, Jason said, um, the unprecedented uh, celebration of uh, meeting our Christmas mission offering goal uh, in-house. That is just... I still just can't get over that. Every year we kind of inch towards that, that goal and we're 5,000 off or 10,000 off and we start praying and then we get these random checks in the mail from people who've been at the church or uh, like our church or love our church um, that don't go here any longer. Um, but this year to have that goal accomplished just in-house is incredible. So thank you for your generosity um, and sowing seeds into the ministry and efforts of people all over the world who are bringing um, the gospel. Um, I love this time of year. And I say, uh, you know, I love Christmas Eve. I love our Christmas Eve service. It's a lot going on. This might be my favorite Sunday of the year, though, um, because I'm a goal setter. Any of you um, threes on the Enneagrams just have to achieve things. You just have to do it. Um, I spent the last three or four days just looking over my goals from last year and seeing what I could do better and making new goals. Um, I've got a hundred goals, actually, not just for the year, but I come up with a hundred life goals. I've been sharing them with people, maybe a little overachiever, not just this year, but I'm going to, and I've always been this way. I remember when Ash and I first started dating and our first kind of new year together, uh, we sat down after the new year and I had a pad out and I was like, all right, babe, what are our, go- what are the goals for our relationship this year? And she looked at me like a crazy person. She's like, well, love each other, uh, you know, like, and that didn't stop. We still do that, you know. Um, I love to set uh, goals. I love to reverse engineer them to see how we can achieve them. I love to evaluate the direction. I love vision. I love to know, okay, where are we going? That's why 2020 was a tough year for me because all the plans just kind of got, you know, blown uh, to pieces. But as we look back and we think about, if we sang that song earlier, The Goodness of God, what an incredible song that God has been so, hey, listen, we made it, we're here, right? And God's faithfulness is what has brought you to this place. And yes, we've, we've walked through some difficulties and some trouble, absolutely. We've grieved some serious losses. But we're here through God's faithfulness. As the psalmist would invite us in Psalms 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. And so I want to do that today, that we would remember the goodness of God. In Hebrews 12, and we're going to kind of jump around in Hebrews a little bit, but Hebrews 12 kind of is one of these verses um, that move us forward with this vision. And it's what's been heavy on my heart for a couple weeks now as I've been praying and reading and thinking through this. Let me read it for us in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, verse 1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
the reason that he is writing this part of the scripture is that last little verse there, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Maybe your translation says, uh, may not grow weary or discouraged in your souls. And I feel like this is a real temptation, even at the beginning of the year, for us to, if we're not careful, we've got all these plans for 2021, and they're not going to go as we planned. It's good to make the plans, but make them in pencil, because we don't know what's going to happen. And this is written to the early church so that they would not grow weary or become discouraged in their souls. Because the Christian life is an endurance race, it's not a sprint. As Eugene Peterson would say all the time, it's a long obedience in the same direction. And we're going to have uh, mountaintops and valleys. Yes, we're going to celebrate and we're going to grieve. Yes, that's all part of life. But so that we don't become grow weary or discouraged in our souls, the author here seems to lift our eyes to Jesus. In this endurance race, you have to continually fuel yourself The sprint will never work. And toward the end of Hebrews, the author continually brings us up again and again that we are in an endurance race. So to keep us from growing weary and discouraged, he takes some deliberate time for us to evaluate where we've come from and to look with vision to where we're going, to encourage us. And I want us to do that today. It starts back in chapter 10. This looking in the past gives us perspective and inspiration. When we look to the past, it gives us perspective and inspiration. Just as we just did, as you looked over this last year, has God not been good to you? Has he not given you what you need to walk through this year? Not that he protects you from any discomfort. No, that's not the promise of the Christian life. But was he with you every step? Absolutely. Did he get you to this place? Did he give you sustaining faith? We get perspective from looking in the past. In verse 10, verse 32, this is what the author reminds the early church of. Remember those early days when you had received the light and you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Seems like their year may have been like yours. In great conflict full of suffering, yet you endured. Now this is... In an increasingly hostile environment, the early church is. And the author here is calling them to look backwards, to get perspective. In a conflict full of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed in verse 33 to insult and persecution. And other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. I love this picture of the early church. Even if they weren't the ones that were being persecuted, they stood next to the ones who were so that they could bear their burdens with them. You suffered along with those in prison and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your own property. This is an incredibly convicting verse. Joyfully accepted. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. What an incredible passage as the author says, hey, hey church, I want you to look back at the goodness of God and how you endured great conflict full of suffering. We get perspective and inspiration from looking at the past. We're not the first generation to face great crisis. We're not the first generation to suffer greatly. 
As a matter of fact, there are people and places around the world that are suffering so much greater than we have ever tasted in our lives. And then the chapter 11, this is that great chapter of faith. You remember when the author begins to list 18 different great characters of faith. And then he goes to 32, let's jump in at 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice and obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. This is one of those, you've been in one of those churches where the people in the congregation help the pastor out and like, yeah, pastor, amen, preacher. Anybody? No? You've never been in one of those? I was in one one day where there was a guy in the front row and he kept saying, what you doing to me now, pastor? What you doing to me? If we could intentionally plant some of those around, it might help me preach a little better. This is one of those passages where you think, man, this is incredible. They put foreign armies to flight and the women received back their dead by resurrection and all the people of God would have been, yes, that's what I'm talking about. The power of God at work. The, re- the listeners getting amped up. The truth is when crisis comes, there is a way to walk through it with great faith. And this is what this chapter lists of Moses and Abraham and Rahab and David and Gideon. Just the faith these people had. It's really not the amount of faith that you have, but what your faith is focused on. We see that with every one of these characters, so many flaws, so many doubts, so many questions, yet ultimately they place their faith in God and say, God, whatever you're asking me to do, I'm going to do. But then the tone of the passage changes. And I love that Scripture does not sugarcoat life. It doesn't cover up the difficult parts. It goes on in verse 35, but some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and in mountains and dens and caves of the earth. You see, the tone changes. This is no prosperity gospel the author of Hebrews is spouting here. No, this is just the truth of real life. That life is hard and yet God is good and he has a plan. Certainly he does. Then in verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They had a vision and they saw a promise. And they were waiting and longing to see the reality of that promise come to fulfillment. Yet in their lifetime, they did not see it. In verse 40, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they could not be made perfect. I love this word us in verse 40, that he ties their stories to our stories and our story to their story. Apart from us, it says they would not be made perfect 
We get inspired by the past, yes, but we need to be honest about the present. Their stories, although incredible and inspirational, they were part of a bigger story that God was telling. They were not the heroes of the story. God was. And you, friend, were never meant to be the hero of your story. No, our stories are part of a bigger, greater story that points to the glory of God and the majesty of his son, Jesus. The story of rescue and redemption and long-suffering and enduring for the sake of faith and a God who loves and has a real plan for our lives. In other words, all these mentioned specifically and the ones even alluded to are in this great crowd that it talks about in chapter 12. Not the heroes of the story, but their lives pointed to the hero that was to come, Jesus. They didn't get to live to see the promise in full. They received the promise. There's coming an ultimate rescuer and redeemer who's going to take the pain and sting of death away and who will die for your sins and mine and conquer the grave and rise again on the third day and will one day return and the dead in Christ will rise first to meet him in the air. And when he returns in that great second advent that we long for, He will come to banish Satan to hell permanently to remove all of sin and death. Yet we wait in that time in between where we've received more of the promise than even they saw. We've seen the fulfillment of the first coming of Christ. We've seen through scripture and know the truth of his death on a cross, his resurrection from the grave, that beautiful gospel. But the fulfillment of it is not here completely yet. And the author points out here in chapter 12, remember all of this so that you would not grow weary or discouraged in your soul. If we're not careful, we think that life is supposed to be heaven, but it's not heaven. No, no, no. The cross now, glory in heaven later. And if we think that we're not supposed to walk through difficulty and there should be no discomfort, then, then we've, missed, we've missed the real essence of life in and of itself. Even Jesus said, if they've persecuted me, they're certainly going to persecute those that follow me. In this world, you're going to have many troubles. I was talking to a friend whose wife had cancer return. One of our pastors in our network and I asked him how he was handling it and in near he was in near disbelief he said you know the night that we received that diagnose, diagnosis that it was back and it was serious her first prayer that night was this Lord I trust you teach me what you have for me in this difficult road ahead and just him saying that grabbed my heart What faith that we could pray, Lord, as we walk through difficulty, and we will. As we walk through hardship, and we will. Some of us, even this year, may be one of the hardest years of your life. To walk in that darkness. Not overcome by the darkness, but to walk in it and through it. And ask that question, Lord, what do you have me in this season of grief? What do you have me walking through in this season of loss? 
Most all of us faced some unfamiliar crisis last year, and most of us just wished it all away. Lord, take the discomfort and the pain and the uneasiness. And that's not necessarily a bad prayer to pray. Jesus prayed a prayer similar to that in the garden. Lord, take this bitter cup away from me. But yet he resigned, Lord, not my will, but your will. And that should be the prayer and the heartbeat of all of us. Lord, whatever I need to walk through, this is, my life's not about me. I've been crucified with Christ, as Paul would say in Galatians. Jesus understood what we need to better grasp today, that God has a plan. And it's not likely the one that we would have chosen. But he has a plan, and his plan is not a bad plan either. He knows all things, and he's working all things together for the good of those that love him. He's got a plan. His plan's great. And his plan ultimately, friends, will result in your good and his glory. Now, you might have to rehearse this to yourself over and over. I imagine Mary in the Christmas story doing this very thing as we've been reading and talking about that. Oh, Joseph is upset. He's going to get a divorce, divorce her quietly. And Mary's praying, God, I know you have a plan, right? Surely Joseph's going to stay with me. And then it's just more, oh, we're going to Bethlehem? Really? Bethlehem? While I'm this pregnant? And then you get there and there's no room. And then in the manger. And then the people that are showing up are the shepherds. Then this weird prophetic announcement in the temple that surely scared her to death. And then another angel saying, hey, listen, this is about to get bad here. You're going to have to go to Egypt. And one thing after another, can you imagine just the inner turmoil in the heart and the mind of Mary saying, God, don't you have a plan? Because it doesn't seem like this is going the way that it should be going. And yet God did have a plan. And his plan was a great plan. It was better than anything that she could have ever even dreamt up. And God has a plan for your life too, friend. He does. But it requires faith in him. It requires you trusting him. God has a plan and his plan is good. And you can trust him. Oh, and there's one more thing. You will never walk that road alone. You have never walked your darkest day alone. God is with you. Look at verse 12. I mean, chapter 12 and verse 1. We get through all of those things, the great faith chapter. We get to chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. No matter how many times he uses that plural pronoun, we are the ones that are surrounded. Let us run with endurance the race. I think this is certainly a reminder that the author is running this race with us, but also it's an allusion even into this chapter that Jesus has run this race before us and his spirit is now within us. I love how every great commission ends with this picture of God being with us. In Matthew 28, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In Luke 24, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of the Father upon you, that he would be with you. In John 20, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And when he has said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, but you will receive 
power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. There's this promise. Hey, friends, I'm sending you out into a difficult and dark world with the beauty of the gospel with you. Difficult times certainly ahead, but I am with you. Friends, we all have a race to run in front of us, but we're not running alone. We don't get to determine the times that we live in. God determined those things. But we do get to resolve how we will walk through the times in which we live. God determines a race. You don't get to pick your story. These people had their crisis, and evidently it was a huge one. And now we have ours. The heroes of old were rewarded for faithfulness through their own crisis. And then the author begins to shift and give some directions for the journey. Now, most inspiration is not from looking at the past. And most encouragement isn't just from correctly assessing the present. Most encouragement through Scripture is looking forward. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now he shifts and gives some directions for the journey. There's a race before us that God has set out, and it's a race that only you can run, specifically for you. There's some dark parts of the world only you light up because God has equipped you with that. Yet there's, there's some caution here. He said, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. So many of us get so burdened by the things that we're carrying, unnecessary weight and burdens of things that we were never meant to bear. This normally affects us with the what if statement. Oh, what if I get the virus? Or what if my parents get the virus? Or what if I lose my job? All these what ifs and those are no good for any of us because even if those things were happening, we can't even imagine how we're going to deal with those things today because God hasn't called us to walk through them today. And when we do walk through them or if we walk through them, he will give us the grace in the moment to walk through that. It's what he says to Paul, that my grace is sufficient for you. So many of us get so burdened by, by the weights we're carrying. It's like a, someone going out to run a, a marathon with combat boots on or full military gear. That's going to be incredibly hard to do. And those things aren't necessary. And this is what he's reminding us of. You've got to lay, actually uses these commanding words that we should lay aside every weight. Friends, what's the weight that you're carrying that God never meant you to carry? Is it pleasing all the people? Everyone always being happy with you? Is it measuring up to some standard that God never set? What, what is it? That, what is the weight? I think one of the weights that I get so convicted of all the time is just how much time we just waste. In 2020, the average American spent four hours and 23 minutes on their phone every day, checking it on average of 100 times in 2019, up to 125 in 2020, and then millennials and Gen uh, X and Gen Z were double that. 
And some might say, but I was reading the Bible. Well, maybe. The average American spends three hours a day on social media alone. Not Netflix, not TV, not sports, not movies. Three hours a day on social media alone. And the average American watches nearly two hours a day of movie, television, streaming devices. So if you work eight hours a day and you sleep eight hours a day and you waste six or seven hours a day, that leaves you with an hour a day to give your mind and heart to the things that are of most weight. And no wonder our souls are so fatigued. I think for most Americans, maybe most people in this room, this is the weight that encumbers. Because our eyes aren't focused on the right thing. Psalms 34, taste and see the Lord is good. We're not tasting. We're not abiding. We're not praying. We're not fasting. But it's not just the weight. It's the sin that so easily entangles or encumbers some of that sin might be prompted by the six hours that we're vegging on all that the world has to offer us. Where we're tuning our heart and soul to the rhythm of the world that sin creeps in and with it it brings darkness and despair and discouragement and worry and apathy and if not dealt with, eventually destruction. The sin that so easily entangles. It's a word picture of a sheep's wool getting tangled in the briars and then getting stuck. And the sheep can't move or can't move as, as they would like to because their wool is attached to the cordage. Sins of the path, bad habits unchecked, friendships that lead us down the wrong path. We've got to break away from those sinful pathways and habits and replace those with greater love and greater affection for God. To find real beauty and sustenance that come with walking with him. In his presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forever. Pleasures plural. From, from being near to God, as the psalmist would say, Lord, it is good for me to be near you. Friends, this is how we're wired. This is the power that keeps us going. This is what they're talking about in chapter 10, that you endured this crazy heavy crisis with joy, and it is certainly possible. We've got to get rid of the weight. We've got to repent of the sin that so easily entangles. And then verse 2, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. Lay aside the unnecessary weight, repent of the sin that entangles, and then, friends, fix your eyes on Jesus. Again, the Bible doesn't normally motivate us by looking back or assessing the present, but by looking up and forward. Abraham knew in chapter 11 that if he followed God, there was a better kingdom. Moses let go of the treasures of Egypt because he knew there were greater, lasting treasures in walking with God. Faith is even defined in Hebrews as believing that God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Evidence of things not seen, it would say. Colossians says that it's hope that springs forth love. And faith, 
Hope and faith today come from a confidence in a greater and better future in front of us. The best is ahead of me. It might be more difficult than last year, but it's still the best. And God is inviting us to walk in it and trust him through it. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Certainly you remember that Jesus is the founder of your faith. Not only Did he purchase it with his own blood? But he gave you the gift of faith to actually trust in him. He's the founder of your faith. Paul would say it like this in Philippians 1. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What a comforting word for discouraged Christians. That God has not grown weary that he has not fallen asleep, as the psalmist says, he does not sleep nor slumber, nor is his right arm shortened, that he can't act. No, he's accurately and actively involved. Because he's not only the founder, but he's the perfecter of your faith. Founder and perfecter, I love that word, that perfecter. You haven't arrived yet, friend. You're not mature yet. He's growing you up. There's things that you still have to learn. There's, there's parts of your character that are still riddled with sin, and God's exposing those things. He's, he's growing you up. This picture in the Old Testament of the potter and the clay of God the great potter working the clay to build this beautiful masterpiece, Ephesians would call it. And yet when there's lumps in the clay or deformities in the clay, then he would have to rip those things out and start to remake. And and that's the process of growing with God. That's the maturation process of every Christian. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's trying to perfect it. And I think Jesus had a lot to teach us in 2020, and most most of us just wished it away. Me included. What's he trying to teach you in the difficulty? I've got a few points of biblical application here, or pastoral maybe application. So that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. Friends, you've got to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. It's really an issue of focus. It's really an issue of direction and intentionality and as we look at the year ahead of us and all the possibilities that it could bring and I'm praying it's the greatest year of fruitfulness that we've ever seen but I'm not in charge of the seasons or the growing I'm in charge of the planting and the watering and that's what that's the only thing that you're in charge of you can't control the weather you can't control the seasons you can't even control all the weeds around you But you can control the planting. 
the truth that you're sowing into your own heart and life. You can control the watering. Being washed with the water of the words as Ephesians would say it. A few quick pastoral points of application. One, if we're going to see Christ formed in us, if we're going to continually fix our eyes on Jesus, you don't do that alone. You do that in real biblical community. Friends, fight for real biblical community. And I mean real and fight. Surround yourself with your own cloud of witnesses. This actual word in chapter 12 is this, the, the Greek word for martyrs. These are the people who had actually died for their faith before. But even in the author's writing it, and we're not sure exactly who the author is. Some think Paul, some think Luke. Others even think maybe Barnabas, but I think that necessarily matters. It's the author is encouraging us as he's walking with us, this picture of real community. He's writing this letter to the churches and he's saying, you as a group, you did not give up when you, in, you, when you faced such incredible difficulty. Why? Because they weren't standing alone. Real community that can encourage you, that can be in the race with you and pray for you and love on you. The kind of com- this kind of community takes time and lots of effort and enormous amounts of grace and forgiveness, but it is so worth it, I promise you. In the 10 years of planting this church, there's been four or five times that I, I had decided in my own mind and heart that I just couldn't do it anymore. I was so overwhelmed with no matter what it was, It was just to that point of, Lord, I just can't do it. And God in his great mercy would bring people aside me to encourage me, to speak truth, to correct me even sometimes. Luke, you got to get out of your own head here, man. People that really loved me and cared for me. There's just no way I could have done it without some of you in this room who spoke truth and encouraged me. Listen, the enemy wants to separate and isolate so that he can pick you up. That's what he wants to do. And he's going to give you every reason not to fight for real community. Oh, Sundays are a bad night or Tuesdays are a bad night or Thursdays are a bad night. Or I got all these things going on. Listen, yeah, we got a lot going on. But do you think it's important to fix your eyes on Jesus, to surround yourself with other people who can kind of help point you in that direction, to remind you of the gospel? Friends, it is. Fight for real biblical community. Not where we just share all frustrations, but people who gospel each other. Remember, this is a marathon, not a sprint. A long obedience in the same direction. Second, that we would stay under the yoke of discipleship. The yoke is an agricultural term for a device that was put on an animal to help guide and direct them. It's a picture of responsibility or task before them, a burden that needs to be accomplished, an expectation. Friends, stay under the yoke of discipleship. Huddles and DGs and whatever we want to call the things where a few of us are getting together, reading the word and holding each other accountable. Those are never easy and never convenient and you never want to go, ever. I lead them and I don't want to go. And I'm like, man, I kind of got a sniffle and maybe it's, Maybe it's, you know, I hadn't seen my kids. I don't want to be a bad parent. I hadn't seen my kids today. And sure, I can't leave my wife with these kids. And she just cooked dinner. And you know what? I'm actually hungry. I didn't even get to eat dinner yet. I'm just, you know, you, if you're not careful, will let the enemy 
make every excuse in the world to remove, to remove you from the process of maturing. We're in a culture where we just like to be fed everything so easily. Your discipleship is something that you, it's a yoke that you have to stay under. And the words that Scripture uses for discipleship are not pleasant words, as iron sharpens iron. When that happens, sparks fly. When you're being pruned, when that happens, things bleed. When the gold is heated and refined by fire, well, that burns. These things are never convenient, but neither is birth and babies or raising kids or anything else worthwhile in your life. Stay under the yoke of discipleship. Let people know the real you. Let them speak truth to your heart without being so defensive. Invite that last 2%. It's not going to be easy. It's not always going to go well. Sometimes they're going to say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. But just keep showing up. The third thing, cultivate a deeper walk with God. I encourage you to have a plan for walking with God this year. That scripture plan that we put out as a church is a great, easy, it's a couple chapters a day. It alternates between uh, New Testament passages and Psalms and Proverbs. So if you didn't start on the first, you're just like three chapters behind. Perfect. You could do that on the way home. Listen to that on the way home. Through prayer, through scripture, through reading God's word, meditating on it, applying it, obeying it. If we are to become conformed into his image, this is what it means. Jesus, the perfecter of our face, to fix our eyes on him. As Paul would see that we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. I pray that you look one degree of glory like Jesus, more like Jesus this year than you did last year. And then finally, to pour yourself out for the sake of others. If we're not careful, we make this all about us. And it's not about us. Just like chapter 11 was not about Abraham, and it was not about Gideon, and it was not about Barak or Samson. It was about Jesus. The best thing that you could do this year is to walk with God and pour yourself out for others. To renounce false freedom and embrace the call to pour yourself out for the sake of other people. Embrace the call to give yourself to God in love. To submit to the yoke of discipleship. To cultivate this deeper walk with God. As Paul says, I beat my body to make it a slave to the things that are of most importance. Embrace the call to love your spouse well, no matter how difficult, forever. Embrace the responsibility to love your kids well, to literally be the picture and amplifier of wisdom in your home. Embrace the responsibility to do good work with integrity and excellence, no cutting corners, to cultivate life. Now this sometimes seems so monotonous because you're just showing up and being faithful in the everyday things. But that is where the glory is actually found. I've shared this quote before and I read it every year on this sermon. First Sunday of the year by R.J. Snell. We do this in concrete ways, keeping the 
prayers, finishing the report, paying our bills, wiping away childish tears, washing the car, caring for our tools, doing the dishes, staying in mundane, ordinary work, while perhaps unromantic, it allows for virtue since natural virtue requires repetition. There is no virtue without repetition. And so we stay put and we sink our roots deep and we find the rich soil of virtue. Parents can confirm this, exhausting, yes, but a new character forms with every nap and meal and diaper and wet bed and smile. We become the people we are by what we choose to do again. If you've been in our church, you've heard me share this quote, and my heart needs this quote every day. We become the people we are by what we choose to do again. This makes us a very certain kind of people. That we stay under the yoke of discipleship and calling and when it would have been so much easier to run away. When it comes to marriage, we stay under the yoke even when it gets hard and we love selflessly and sacrificially. Just as Jesus called us to do. When it comes to children, we invest in them. We've used the phrase around here, becoming people of the second shift. Like that's the most important shift when we invest in our kiddos, not the shift that we work and get paid for, but when we come home and we're able to invest these truths into the lives of our kids and our neighbors and our friends. Give yourself to your kids in a sacrificial way, a self-donating love and investment in their spiritual and physical and emotional lives. When it comes to your walk with God, give yourself to a life of discipleship, becoming like Jesus, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Men, stay under the yoke. Women, stay under the yoke. Teenagers, stay under the yoke of discipleship. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't blame the difficulty of 2020 or the trouble that's going to come in 2021. There's always going to be obstacles. Whatever is keeping you from serious discipleship, fix it. There's something so powerful waking up every morning and opening God's word and asking him to speak to you. Most of the time, maybe no fireworks or euphoric, cataclysmic word from God. But you're becoming a different person. You're becoming conformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Friends, so that you may not grow weary or discouraged in your souls. I pray for us. God, you know our hearts. You know them better than we know them. And you have work to do in us, on us, and through us even today. Lord, as we come to this place, we're going to take communion in a minute. Can we just, Lord, I just want us to meet with you. Holy Spirit, that you would be the comforter, that you would be the convictor, that you would lead us to the truth today for those who don't know you in this room, that they would take a step of faith and place their faith and trust in you this morning. Those that might even be watching at home so discouraged and overwhelmed with whatever's going on or how difficult 2020 was, Lord, would you give them great hope today as they fix their eyes on you.
So Lord, do what you need to in our own hearts. As we consider the, the weight that encumbers, as we consider the sin that entangles, Lord, my prayers at Covenant Church would be your people in 2021. When the world around us wants to know what God looks like, that they could look at us as followers, not in some prideful way. Lord, we're, we're sinners. We're forgiven and found grace. Lord, do this great work in us, transforming us into the image of your son as we fix our eyes on him. In his mighty name that we pray, amen. I'm going to be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Feel free to stay right there at your tables and pray. Ask God what he wants, what step of faith he's calling you to take. We'll do communion after a song.